Welcome to this special episode of the Farmers Weekly Podcast, the Farmers Weekly Question Time event at the Harrogate Pavilions in Yorkshire. Recorded in front of a live studio audience on Thursday the 11th of January 2024, farmers and other guests quiz industry leaders on topical agricultural issues. We hope you enjoy the listen. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our Farmers Weekly Question Time event hosted for us here at the Pavilions of Harrogate by the Future Farmers of Yorkshire. A warm welcome to everybody. I'm your host, Johan Tasker, and I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Institute for Agriculture and Horticulture, GSC Grays and Lightsource BP for making this evening possible. Launched in 2010, the Future Farmers of Yorkshire inspires and develops the very best people to lead Yorkshire's agricultural industry to a thriving future. Members include more than a thousand forward-thinking farmers, vets and industry supporters who are keen to expand and share their knowledge and excel in their careers. And it does so by providing a platform for debate and the sharing of ideas, which brings us to our panel of experts who are going to be answering your questions this evening. On my immediate left, DEFRA Minister Robbie Moore is responsible for a portfolio which includes flooding, water, environmental regulation and rural growth. A Nuffield scholar, Robbie was elected Conservative MP for Keithley in 2019. And before that, he worked as a chartered surveyor and farm business consultant as well as being involved in his family's farm in Lincolnshire. Next to Robbie, Sophie Throop is Technical and Sustainability Director for Manufacturing at supermarket retailer Morrison's. Sophie heads up Morrison's Agricultural and Sustainable Sourcing Policy and Programmes and is also a non-executive director for Assured Food Standards, which operates the Red Tractor Farm Assurance Scheme. She was also a driving force in setting up the School of Sustainable Food and Farming at Harper Adams University in Shropshire. Next to Sophie, Andrew Swift is Chief Executive of Ferrer Science, a centre of excellence for plant and bee health, crop protection, sustainable agriculture, food quality and chemical safety. Responsible for all aspects of the business, Andrew is a strong advocate of the circular economy and technologies to reduce the environmental cost of food production. He's a commissioner on the Trade and Agriculture Commission and has also served as a non-executive director of the Crop Health and Protection Agritech Centre. On my right, Robin Vinter is North of England correspondent at The Guardian. Previously a reporter at Farmers Weekly, Robin won the Local Hero Award at the AOP Awards in 2020 and has been nominated for numerous journalism awards, including the Paul Foote Award for Investigative and Campaigning Journalism. She set up and ran the investigative news website The Overtake between 2014 and 2020 and was a fellow of the Reuters Institute at the University of Oxford in 2022. Last but by no means least, next to Robin, Sir Robert Goodwill is Chairman of the House of Commons Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Select Committee, which scrutinises government policies for agriculture. MP for Scarborough and Whitby since 2005, Sir Robert is a former DEFRA minister and MEP himself. He farms 250 acres at Terrington near Moulton, where his family have farmed 
since 1850. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and give our panel a big Yorkshire welcome. Thank you very much. Our uh, first question is uh, Robert Sullivan. Robert Sullivan, I'm a farm business consultant from this region. We hear the word transition a lot at the moment. What are we supposed to transition to? We hear the word transition a lot at the moment. What are we supposed to transition to? Robbie Moore. Very good question. So, uh, and good to see you, Rob. So, uh, we need to be transitioning to a environment which absolutely, uh, an agricultural sector which absolutely puts food security, food production, um, profitability at the heart of whatever we are doing. And I want to see now. I'm in the department a directional shift, and I am reassured by having the Secretary of State in position um, that we will be having an absolute core focus on making sure that whatever the government is doing in terms of policy, where it is helping or, uh, or policy that is hindering, um, we are transitioning and making sure that our food farming sector has got food security at its heart. Now, where can government help or hinder with that? And what, what, what are the challenges? Um, we are obviously going through a, a, a key transition period from, in regards to subsidy, moving away from basic payment scheme to ELMS, um, through FS, um, sing, uh, sustainable farming incentive, countryside stewardship schemes, land recovery schemes. And we have seen some good announcements, I think, in the Oxford farming uh, conference uh, where we are uh, providing an extra 10% to some of the uh, to two options that are being provided. We're providing an extra 50 uh, options that can be rolled out through um, sustainable farming incentive. We're providing uh, more uh, more payments that can be released through uh, premium and uh, uh, premium payments and um, accelerated payments. But. What I want to see the department and where we are making a directional shift is that we are not just constantly talking about um, uh, about uh, subsidy payments through through ELMS, but we are helping um, through productivity grants and removing some of the barriers that are associated uh, with, in my view, uh, not um, not allowing businesses uh, to crack on and have as little government interference as possible. So yes, the word tr uh, transition in, is is constantly getting utilised. Uh, through all forms of discussion at the moment, uh, but unless um, policy is working at a national level practically on the ground with a core focus on food security, um, it's not working. And that's where I want to make sure that practical uh, practical uh, that policy is working practically on the ground as best as it can. Thank you, Robbie. Um, practical policies, um, Sophie. Sophie Throop, you're. Uh um, you are instrumental, one of the people who were instrumental in setting up the School of Sustainable Food and Farming at Harper Adams. Um, you obviously have an interest in transitioning towards or the food system and farmers transitioning towards a, a more sustainable way of doing things. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we know we sort of hear that from a lot of some citizens and customers in, in, at large, really, how we're sort of thinking about sustainability. But sustainability is a word and a term that not everybody can access and understands what it means for me. And so one of the reasons we wanted to set up the School of Sustainable Food and Farming was to try and help look at that and help um, give farmers guidance, whether they're in their um, sort of uh, learning phase at, at Harper Adams or whether they're actually out already well within their careers and need to know where to access a safe and reliable and trusted form of information, um, whether that's from skills training or from webinars or workshops, but also looking at various different research, close to market 
market research that can help some of this um, sort of uh, move towards a more sustainable way of farming. So that can be, um, it embraces things like regenerative principles, but also just understanding, well, actually, what can I practically get my hands around in order to lower emissions on my farm? What does that mean for me? How can that be associated with cost? How can it be something I can access? And I think um, for me as well, we're transitioning and transitioning needs to um, come hand in hand with understanding the skills that we need to get there. Um, because actually it's no good just having a target and not having anything that's going to help that roadmap and those milestones for farmers to progress. Thank you, Sophie. Um, one of the things that we try to do at the Farmers, uh, Farmers Weekly Questioning Time is to try and get a, a, a broad, balanced um, um, panel from all sections of, uh, of the supply chain. And um, I, I think I'm really pleased that I think this evening we, we have managed to, to do that. Um, not only do we have a government minister here who's uh, responsible for, for some of the policies that um, the farmers have to abide by, we have, have a retailer, we have science-based uh, um, um, uh, interests as well. And we, we have Robin Vinter from The Guardian, who I guess from my point of view is from a, a non although she used to work for Farmers Weekly, a non-farming, uh, has, a, has a primarily non-farming audience. And I'm going to ask Robin in a minute um, whether, well, what, what her readers are interested in when it comes to um, food systems and transitioning from one thing to another, and indeed consumers interested in sustainability and where their food comes from. But before I, I do that, Anybody in the audience who would like to make a, a point on, on this agricultural transition uh, that, we're, that we're undergoing at the moment? I mean, uh, yes, the, the, and if you could just wait for the mic and um, just say who you are and where you're from. It's Lucinda from the CLA. Thanks, Robert. Um, yeah, it's Lucinda <laughs> Douglas from the CLA. Um, my point was really, we get a lot of feedback from obviously our members and particularly new entrants who are really struggling to try and obviously take advantage of these schemes at the moment because SFI is not available to them until summer this year and they wouldn't get any payments till much later this year. And we hear stories where new entrants are putting themselves forward on farm business tenancy tenders, but they are so fundamentally disadvantaged in terms of the rents that they can tender and offer because they don't have access to the transitional SFI scheme. So I would be really interested to hear from yourself, Robbie, I'm afraid, um, what is that going to look like and can you not please accelerate that access to new entrants in particular so they're not financially disadvantaged? Mm. Yeah, so, so uh, a very good question, Lucinda. Um, and this is one of the things that I've been raising since getting into the department. And, and Mark Spencer, as the farming minister, is, is well aware, as is the Secretary of State, that we need to make sure that it's as easy as possible for new entrants to get in, involved in farming if they're not from farming at all, but even those that are wanting to continue within existing farming businesses. That's, that's accepted and absolutely noted. Um, I, I myself know, that, know those challenges uh, very well. So um, um, one of the recognitions of this is making sure, as you've, you've touched on that FSI um, single uh, um, SFI um, options are going to be made available for those that are not necessarily uh, receiving BPS payments at the moment um, and we are looking at the moment of whether or not we can go further in terms of timings with that um, and that will be one help but in addition to that we've also um, set up um, over the last couple of years the uh, Institute for Agriculture and Horticulture which is trying to as uh, who are here today who are in the audience and they've got a table I'd urge everyone to speak to them if they haven't done 
done already, but that's about wanting to make sure that we are getting the right people as uh, from outside the sector, getting involved in food, farming, uh, horticulture, but also making uh, it as easy as possible for those career paths to develop for those um, that maybe grow up on a farm and want to have that easier access pa uh, pathway. And I think there's a further point that we can probably try and help with, which probably sits more with the private sector, but where government can try and create some direction is in terms of uh, releasing capital as well, in terms of making it, it easier for farm businesses to try and have the reassurance um, if they're associated with tenancy arrangements, longevity of those tenancy arrangements as well. And there are discussions happening with the uh, tenancy reform uh, group as well on, on that, uh, Lucinda, as well. So uh, it's something that I want to prioritise as well, uh, being new into, into the department. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Lucinda. Robin, are consumers interested in this sort of stuff? Are they interested in the food sustainability of food or, or quite frankly, do they just want to eat? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, consumers are definitely interested in sustainability. I think there's a huge perception uh, that there's a, a kind of clash between, especially, you know, I work at The Guardian, so, you know, there's probably a lot of people in this room that think of The Guardian readers as being kind of, granola munching, you know, hemp shirt wearing hippies, basically. Um, and and we, do, we do have those readers, definitely. Um, but I, but I, I think actually there are a lot more people kind of in the middle ground who can see a lot of different perspectives and maybe don't come from a farming background or don't live in a rural area, but, you know, care passionately about what, what they would say is factory farming, which, you know... Um, kind of, I think, kind of aligns with a, a lot of uh, what how farmers feel about, you know, that people should be able to survive on their family farm without, you know, without having to sell it, without having, you know, have, having it taken over, um, you know. So, so there's, there are a lot of places where, where things kind of align. You know, people talk about food miles. Um, and actually, you know, if you ask people on the street, they do really care about eating local food in principle. Then in practice, when it comes to the supermarket and they're looking at the prices of things, they'll often just go for the cheapest thing. Although, you know, there's a notion, I think, in this country that uh, we, you know, we're very blessed, I suppose, to be able to eat food from all around, all around the world. Um, but we still have this kind of perception that, like, for some reason, a mango is better than an apple, uh, which, you know, isn't, isn't the case. It's just that we haven't had mangoes until, you know, the last 50 50 years or something like that. Um, so I think there's a lot that we can do to reframe the narrative um, and find those places where the farming industry and consumers align um, and kind of get the message out, which is, you know, something that we don't, we don't do very well at all in this country. Thanks, Robin. We're going to come on to that. And I, I think I'm going to make that the next question. But first of all, Andrew Swift, uh, the circular economy, does, does science have a part? Well, it, obviously science does have a part, but what part does science have to play in all of this? Um, <clears throat> well, if anybody listens to farming today, one piece of innovation in science that you'll have heard this morning at 5.45 is the role of insect bioconversion to upcycle farm waste and hazardous residues into more advantageous products for regenerative agriculture, such as bio-inputs for fertilisers and soil health. So there, there are countless innovations in the, in the science field which can properly impact um, uh, food production at a lower environmental cost. And I think in relation to the question about transition, we have to transition to a lower environmental cost way of producing food, otherwise we'll run out of time and we'll leave nothing for our children. 
It's, I don't wish to sound too alarmist about that. There's a national element to your answer and a global element to your answer. Globally, there will not be enough surface area of the planet left to feed the world in 30 years from now unless we find more ingenious ways of producing food from the same surface area and curating the environment at the same time. We lost a thousand species on the planet last year, a thousand species. 200 animals have left the planet in the last 30 years. We, we can't carry on like that. Otherwise, the bottom end of the food chain is not feeding the top end and we've got nothing left to eat. So, you know, I don't wish to be alarmist or, or be an activist in the space. I'm a scientist and I'm interested in applying novel approaches to how we can get more value out of the surface area that we farm or how we produce meat in different ways or we produce you know, fibre and nutrients in different ways. We, <clears throat> I don't think the world has an option not to look at that and take it very seriously. Or we'll run out of time. Andrew, thank you very much. Um, Sir Robert Goodwill, um, slightly different question, which might, might be a, a little bit cheeky, so fee feel free to answer the what are we transitioning uh, to. But also, are you happy with the way the government is, is doing this? Is EFRA committee chairman? How, how, how should this sort of transition be managed? And is it going about it in the right way, do you think? Uh, I mean, I think the first point to make, there's actually two transitions. There's transition one is the way that we're delivering aid to the industry. And actually, you know, in the old days when we were in the European Union, it was great. You just got a check every Christmas. And if anybody threatened that system... French farmers started burning tyres in the road and German farmers blocked tractors, you know, and it was great. Nobody was ever going to touch that. Now, we really need to think, you know, that we can deliver the uh, support that farmers need in a way that's politically acceptable. And so with the ELM scheme, you know, we were just as likely to have Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace campaigning to keep that scheme in place as maybe in the old time when it was, why were we giving all these farmers all this money for just being farmers? Just the fact that, you know, we took, got a tenancy in 1850 means that we get money from the government. I think in terms of the other transition is, is a way that we, you know, yes, we've got to deliver food, you know, front and forward. That is the most important thing farmers do, particularly following, you know, the, the, the crisis after the invasion of Ukraine. But we can deliver other things as well. Some of those mean sacrificing land. Some of those mean actually spending money on stewardship schemes. But some of them actually can be done in parallel. And that's why I think the sustainable farming incentive is so good, because you can do that at the same time as producing. You don't have to sacrifice some of your land. In fact, some of the soil management practices, I think, may well help augment the sort of yields we're having. And I think if consumers recognise that, that makes it more likely they'll opt for a sustainable British product than maybe something that's been important. That's why I think it's so great that Morrison's are now the first supermarket uh, uh, to introduce a sort of a very easy, you know, online shopping, identify British produce. And I hope the other supermarkets will follow where Morrison's have been leading. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is a nice segue into uh, our, our second question. Um, Charlotte Middlebrook. Charlotte Middlebrook. Um, I'm a primary school teacher and come from two mixed family farms and a diversification um, holiday accommodation business uh, near Selby. Um, so my question is, coming at it from both angles really, um, how can we ensure that the next generation are accurate, accurately educated about food and farming? Yeah, I think uh, this, from my perspective, um, it's uh, lis listening to consumers and listening to concerns and using the right messages, you know, to, to get to them. Um, so I think 
if you ask people on the street about, uh, you know, what's, who does the best bacon in the world? A lot of people would say, oh, you know, Danish bacon is the best bacon in the world, or, you know, whatever, and they've kind of been sold these messages. And actually, the truth is, British bacon is the best bacon in the world. Um, and, I, and I think we, we've had a huge problem, well, the farming industry has had a huge problem of getting that message across to consumers, um, and especially when it comes to younger people as well. And I think there's a whole wave now of, of veganism, um, which I know will probably... A few people, stomachs probably dropped just at the mention of, <laughs> of that word. But, you know, there, there are ways, uh, you know, there are a lot of people in this country who aren't vegans. And, you know, trying, I think sometimes the messages, there's a kind of heat between, you know, the vegan messages of, um, you know, meat's bad for you. Um, and then the kind of counter of that message to say, you know, that, that might be, well, soya milk's got, all these different ingredients or you know whatever the whatever the messages are and I think consumers can sometimes get a bit lost in the middle of that and I think actually no one's speaking necessarily to the the kind of middle ground the people in between um who you know people if a lot of people just want to eat bacon maybe they maybe maybe they believe it's bad for them but they still want to eat it and we can say you know British British bacon is the best bacon in the world. It's, you know, historically it's always had the best welfare standards for the last, what, 30 or 40 years or, or whatever. Um, and I, th- I think those messages don't, don't quite, you know, get, get across somehow. Thanks, Robin. Sophie, through as a retailer, you're sort of you're at the um, interface, I guess, of producers and consumers. How can we ensure that the next generation are accurately and adequately educated about food and farming? So, yes, yeah, so thank you. So it's a really interesting question and one that I'm certainly really passionate about as well. And I think we've all, all of us in this room have got our part to play on this particular piece. Um, I think we can sort of think about how it, that sort of starts and thinks and functions within schools. And so obviously there's potentially a role for the government in the sort of like curriculum that is sort of going into schools. But also how can we help sort of like, um, uh, you know, play our part as we're farmers at home as well. But how can we play our part, you know, bringing schools onto our farms and helping sort of show a different way. I mean, when, uh, when the children were small and I, before I was working I used to do sort of farm visits uh, school visits on farms we had about 50 farm visits uh, school visits onto our farm a year um, and it was a way of sort of opening up our farm and showing you know really how how food was made and we sort of like brought those children in from Leeds and Hull so they weren't very um, not necessarily rural farms so basically so they could really sort of have an experience and come out into the countryside as well as go and see how food is made and where it comes from and sometimes that to be honest was not just an education for the children but also for some of the you know, teaching teaching support staff as well, um, who maybe didn't realise that a cow had to be pregnant before they could give milk, and you know things like that, which perhaps we take for granted. But you know, we shouldn't think just because you know that's other people haven't had that experience and had had to think about it. So I think there's a there's a part for us all to play there in sort of a schools piece. There's also a, a really important part for us all to play um, from a, from potential social media as well. And I think social media, you know, yes, it can be quite a sort of a, a sort of a tricky tool, but also an incredibly empowering tool and I look at the amount of amazing content that's on social media from many many farmers across the across the UK across the globe who are sort of playing their part in sort of like showing how farming is and where food comes from what they're doing on their on their land and that's brilliant and you know we sort of like know um, from sort of uh, studies that I've seen I'm sure you've seen the same that it isn't farmers talking to farmers all the time in those they are talking to other sort of people who who hadn't really come across that space and I think on that on that sort of like tack as well um, we have to sort of think 
think as well about the role that um, people like Jeremy Clarkson have done. He's completely accessed a non-farming audience and brought sort of like his message about farming into, into different ways. Maybe, maybe you know, some of his methods have maybe not necessarily been the most health and safety conscious and other things like that. But, uh, but nevertheless, you know, there's that sort of part of us all sort of getting behind talking with the public. But certainly for our own part in Morrison's, you know, I recognise that, yeah, we very much recognise that we've also got our part to play in thinking about that next generation too. Um, and that next generation of consumers who are going to be buying, hopefully, from Morrison's in the future, but also from, from, uh, from supermarkets and thinking about that British food. And certainly our stores um, and our colleagues in stores um, have done quite a number of school visits going around the store. And we've also had farmers joining them in, uh, in, in various different times as well on those school visits. So they can sort of like literally talk to the farmer in the supermarket about you know, where milk comes from and, uh, and really think about that farm to, to shelf journey too. So I think we've, uh, we've all got our sort of part to play there in terms of those next generation of consumers. Um, but also potentially uh, there's that next generation of farmers as well that we're thinking of. And maybe I don't know whether we're sort of, that's a too big a question to get into all in the same answer, uh, Jehan. But, uh, but yes, I think that's also a really thing that we think very, very carefully about and do quite a lot of uh, work on as well. Wondering if SFI is right for your farm? You can get free SFI advice from GSC Gray's qualified and experienced farm business consultants. Upland beef and sheep farmer Rachel Halos has recently undergone a half-day business review and had this to say about the Farm Business Advice Service. I think in times of change, sometimes you need to find that external partner, even though it's really difficult to do sometimes because it's about letting people into your business. And I would absolutely recommend anybody go and look at the GSC Graves website, get them to your farm, sit them around the table. I don't think they'll regret it in the long run. It might be difficult to do initially, but you've got to do it. Book your free half-day review now by visiting the GSE Greys website. GSE Greys is a farm of land and property experts operating across the north of England. The Farm Business Advice Service is funded by DEFRA's Future Farm Resilience Fund. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. Robbie Moore, educating consumers, educating people, the next generation about uh, about food and farming. What uh, what role is there for for DEFRA and the government in this? Well, I think there is a role. I mean, this is this is absolutely one of the things that concerns me probably the most because there's a two two track issue here. Not only educating people where their food comes from, but also sparking the interest that this is an awesome sector to get involved in in the first place. So, to me, you know, the first influence should be in the home, and we have an absolute challenge, I think, where um, we have a, a parents that d- probably. Um, don't necessarily know quite where all of the food comes from and that is a challenge in itself and also making sure on how we're cooking as best as we could in the home environment and, and there's a piece to do there in itself but I think it starts at a very early age um, uh, um, uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the home but also in the classroom. Um, Leaf do a fantastic job with opening up the farms on Open Farm Sunday. Um, when I was working up in Northumberland, uh, our agricultural societies as I know here do an absolutely great job. I was involved with the Glendale Agricultural Society, for example, where we had a children's day. We invited all the um, primary schools up from uh, Gateshead, uh, Newcastle up to Northumberland. We held a show 
and showing how the transition can work from uh, auctioning sheep off to um, effectively uh, getting the kids in, having a, a, a go um, right the way through to shearing. And one of the biggest concerns I had with that when I was trying to organise that was I had teachers coming to me from Gateshead saying, crikey, we're not bringing kids up to Northumberland to watch sheep being um, you know, killed to make a jumper. And which highlights the fact that there is a significant amount of work to do with educating the educators as well. We've got some, we've got some good, obviously, people out there that are doing that, but what it illustrates is not everybody's on the same page. And if we are not getting uh, those involved at a young age with knowing where their food comes from and also how to cook it and, and, and produce healthy uh, uh, produce at, around the table that is coming from um, uh, local supermarkets, uh, we're failing. Where can government help? I think there's a lot more work that we can do in terms of joining up um, DEFRA, but also with DFE. Uh, I think there is work that we can do with our land-based colleges as well. Um, um, and we're making, we're making progress on that, but there is, there, there is work, to do, work, work to do on that. So, um, uh, so uh, and also, um, I also have had discussions around, I mean, there was a campaign not that long ago um, about having a, a specific GCSE on agriculture. Um, and I, I did look at this uh, when I got first elected and, and, uh, and I thought, well, actually, I think what makes more sense and which is being helpful from being rolled out at a later stage throughout the education piece is through T levels, which is an equivalent to A levels. So this enables um, uh, existing subjects to get, um, uh, rather than going down purely the academic A-level route, to do a T-level route, which is more STEM-related, where you are doing part of your learning in the classroom and part of your learning out in the environment, on farm, with involved within a business. And this can be rolled out through the agricultural side, but also through other sectors, manufacturing, engineering, tech. And I think we've got to make sure that we're focusing just as equally on the STEM-related side um, as we are on pure academic subjects as well. And that will hopefully drive more interest uh, getting involved uh, in, in, the, in the agricultural sector. So there's a, there's a huge piece to do, I think, from, from very early age in the home, right the way through uh, primary and secondary education as well. Robbie, thank you. Um, Charlotte, are you happy with what you're hearing? Have you got any ideas yourself? What are, what are you doing? Yeah, um, I, I completely agree with what Robbie was saying about there needs to be a more joined up approach, you know, between DEFRA and DFE, because having, like I say, worked on both sides, shall we say, education and agriculture, I think it is a case of joining up the two. And I think having taught in different schools, um, I think a lot of teachers do see the importance of it, but I think it's a case of enabling that, if that makes sense, because there's so many other um, restrictions and, um, as you know, things that schools have to tick off um, on the curriculum. And I think it is just ensuring that it's made high enough priority um, on the school's agenda. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, enabling that really with resourcing and funding. And just to expand on that, and one thing which, which the government are doing, which is working really well, is where you're having core subjects, having a module within that subject which is about getting out on farm. So as part of doing business studies or science or bio, biology, whatever it is, part of that module is about getting out on farm and doing the learning, whether it's at primary or secondary level, on farm in the farming environment. And that may, may mean going on farm or may be involved in interacting with one of our land-based colleges, etc. But that's the sort of directional shift to 
spark that interest at an earlier age? Thanks, Robbie. The, the lady there, just uh, wait for the microphone and uh, then say who you are and where you're from. Hello, I'm Tango Fawcett, farmer from Tagaster. Um, I do a lot of school farm visits as well. I'm a trustee of the Country Trust. Um, and I'd like to congratulate the government, which is an un unusual thing, about SFI, because I think that SFI is actually, the, the latest iteration of it has actually been pretty good. Um, and obviously the payment rates have gone up for the school farm visits up to £363 a visit. And that ought to make a few farmers yeah. sort of sit up. Yeah. But what I would like to ask Robbie in particular to make happen is that at the moment you can only get it through what was Countryside Stewardship because it says it's on the five-year um, system as opposed to the three-year system, which was SFI, if you, you know what I mean. The SFI was the three-year. And, yes. And I think for farmers, if they could go in on the sort of the three-year system and they could even drop in, right, this year we'll do three or four, like you can, you know, if you want to put in your... A, B, you know, whatever, all the different things under SFI, you can do them for more or less, you know, it's more as a, depending on the rotational size, you could do the same for school farm visits. Yeah. So if you could add it to the SFI bit, the three-year programme, then I think it would be much more um, flexible and we'd get many more farmers in, put the CVAS in as well. Mm. So I don't know if that's possible. Well, I always, I'll always receive good feedback when I'm sitting here as a government minister. So thank you for saying that at the start. But the point's absolutely noted because there is no better educator than our farming community because they know their industry best. And if we are able to support that as a government and there are tweaks that could be made and has been noted by industry, it's noted certainly by me and it's the case for me to be able to take it away of the officials. Thank you. Robert, would you like to make a point at all? Or? Yeah, I mean, the first part I'd make actually about Danish bacon, because if you go to Denmark, it's not particularly good because the bacon that doesn't meet the export quality doesn't get exported from Denmark, and that's sort of an, uh, an advantage they've got in terms of the export. And actually, as we negotiate more free trade deals around the world, you know, we, we can actually say, you know, the very best produce is British because we won't export anything that falls slightly below standard. I think the other um, great ignorance, and it's impossible, I think, to underestimate the ignorance in some of our urban communities about food and, and where it's produced and how it's produced. The other problem is people don't understand seasonality anymore. And, and I was watching uh, James Martin on Saturday morning. I can't remember the ingredient he was using, but if he'd done that in September or in July, it would have been a brilliant way of getting people to buy British produce. But he was using ingredients that were completely out of season here in the UK and, in effect, encouraging people to buy imported produce and all the, the you know, the, the, the air miles, the, the food miles and, and the carbon that that particularly would, would encourage people to uh, contribute to. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Uh, Andrew, sorry. I have a couple of observations to make. I think it's an absolutely brilliant question and it's right at the heart of the matter if you think about it because that generation is the purchasing power for the time frame that counts the environmental enhancements we need to make. It won't be what you or I spend at the supermarket, it'll be what they spend and their choices. They're at an age where their brain is like a sponge, they can learn a foreign language quicker than ever at that age, they can learn about the natural cost of food production at that age more receptively. If any of you have got teenage daughters like mine, and you want to communicate with them, unless you do it by TikTok, you won't get through. <laughs> so I think DEFRA Digital have got a role to play to come out with gaming technologies and online and digital communication platforms to get into the heads of the youth of today, the real cost of farming. It cannot be right that the family chicken Sunday roast costs less than a pint of beer. That cannot be right. There's a massive undervalue 
somewhere in the societal contract of the cost of food production. And that has to be addressed. And the kids are the way to do it. Thank you, Andrew. Um, speaking of TikTok and things like gaming, Farming Simulator being a, being a great example of, uh, uh, of a computer game which has uh, exceeded, I think, all expectations of the, even, the, even the manufacturers and the game designers who made it in terms of um, it, its success and, uh, and actually encouraging people um, into farming to carve a career in farming themselves. I'm going to move on to the, to, well, actually, has anybody else got any ideas, any, any great ideas as to how the industry... Johan, could I just add one postscript to my previous Perfect. comment, the, probably the most important point in Wonderland I didn't make. D does anybody know the penny supermarket chain in Germany? Uh, they're, they're, they're quite a big retailer in the middle of Germany, and they conducted an experiment with the University of Nuremberg last year for the month of July, where they, <clears throat> they put all the produce on the supermarket shelves at the traded cost, the consumer cost, and at the cost that represented the environmental cost of the production of the food. So your bratwurst, if you chose to buy it with an environmental conscience, cost six times more than the bratwurst you bought if you bought it at the retail price. A really interesting experiment. Clearly, nobody's going to go around choosing to spend six times their average grocery bill per week than, than the next person. But as an education exercise, to begin to introduce the population to understand how much of a discount they were getting by buying at a consumer retail price, it was a very successful exercise. And I think we could and should do more on the label of products in our supermarket shelves. I, I, I've got a PhD in science and I can't understand the label on most of the food I buy. So we've got to simplify it and we've got to put more crudely, more basic facts about you know, where that came from and what the cost of its production was to the environment. I'm going to say just briefly, hold, 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 that, hold that thought. The, um, the microphone over there, please, Anna, right on the, on the end of the row. That's it. So who you are and where you're you from? Thank you very much. Uh, Paul Flynn, uh, East Durham College, uh, Hoffle Farm. It's a land-based agricultural college, uh, and I've just moved there recently from Ascom Bryan College. Um, if I can join the queue for the tweaks, please, Robbie. Um, the T-level, you know, okay, it's, it's a challenge. It's, uh, it's a whole new ball game. But for some reason, there's a separation between the, the arable farming and, and, the live, uh, and the livestock farming. Yeah. So at 15, 16 years of age, a student's being asked to choose between arable yeah. or livestock. In terms of regeneration, in terms of sustainability, I just think that's not the way to go. Yeah. Please, can we have that? Just the option, at least, of a mixed farming model, please. Yeah. Uh, it's already been raised with me, so, uh, and, and it's been noted already. Yeah, thank you. Gentlemen, there, please. So, who you are and where you're from? Uh, Phil Rowbottom. The education side of it, there are already two volunteer sections going. I believe the NFU have a volunteer education department and also Farmer Time, yeah. where we talk to school children via the internet straight to their classroom from our farm. Mm. Mm. Uh, and that's been running for a few years now. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just hold on for the... Uh... Okay. I'm sorry, Anna, we should have got two microphones, shouldn't we? She's <laughs> got a trainers on. Keep, keep your bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so say who you are and where you're from, please. Yeah, hi, Mark Jeffrey, farmer from the south of the country. Um, exactly, the gentleman's just mentioned the NFU uh, strategy in, in, in passing. Um, it's exactly what we do, and the curriculum, uh, or the, the, the work that we do, is fitted uh, around the curriculum 
to, to do precisely what you're suggesting and get through to young children yeah. who are going to be our future consumers. Yeah. Vital work. Thank, thank, thank you very much. Um, I, I'm sorry to do this. Phil Robotov is the next... Uh, <laughs> it's not a deliberate thing, you know. <laughs> she has some steps in belly. Um, yeah, Phil, Phil Robotov. Uh, good evening, Phil Robotov. I'm a farmer from Wakefield. Um, we've been constantly told for the last 20, 25 years we need to diversify. Why do I, as a farmer, need to do two or three jobs to make a living? We've been told for the past 20 or 30 years that we need to diversify. Why should I, as a farmer, have to do two or three jobs to, to make a, a living? So, Robert Goodwill, you've, you, you've done a farm diversification yourself. Yeah, I mean, imagine if, if I would suggest that, that instead of giving junior doctors a pay rise, we should encourage them to take in lodgers or maybe open a shop at the end of their drive or do all those other things that, that farmers are being encouraged to do. Um, I think a lot of farm diversification is about sort of sweating the asset. You know, if you've got a set of farm buildings that's no good for storing grain in anymore, no good for livestock, then why not turn it into a holiday cottage? We actually have... Um, um, we, we have... Uh, people who come to stay on our farm. Uh, we've got about 600 at the moment and they're going to be staying there forever because we've got one of these green environmentally friendly uh, cemeteries. And it works very well alongside the farm because the, the, the equipment we have on the farm, actually uh, a lot of that we use that. We were an excavator which we used to dig in graves, etc. And so that, that does mesh in very well with the farm business. Uh, you've also, on a, on a farm, often in a, a remote area, you know, you, you really don't want your wife to be commuting 20 miles to the nearest town to work, whereas you can have a, a diversification project on the farm, which means the whole family can stay together. And if you've got ad additional, you know, if you've got two or three sons, then, you know, something like a farm contracting business or some other diversification keeps the family together as well. So we're not quite the same as the, as the doctors, you know, and, and suggesting that farmers should diversify is actually uh, quite a good idea for many farmers. And certainly our green cemetery, dare I say, makes twice the profit as the farm does. And, and without that, we wouldn't be able to afford to keep on a full-time member of staff on a 250-acre farm. So it works very well for us. Uh, and also, incidentally, sometimes if I want a bit of exercise, I can always fill in a grave or two, which is um, cheaper than going to the gym by a long way. <laughs> hey, that's spoken like a true Yorkshireman, Robert. Um, <laughs> the, um, uh, thank, thank you very much. Um, Rob, Robbie Moore, the SFI, uh, the announcements in particular last week have been welcomed, uh, widely welcomed across the industry as uh, um, extending the number of options, 10% rise in average across the board in, in terms of the payment rates. But there is also this concern that um, w over whether the scheme is compatible with food production or not. And, and as, as, uh, as Philip Robottom has, has said, uh, he's having to do two or three jobs to make a living, uh, struggling to make a living from food production. Is it right that farmers should have to have, to have two or three jobs to make a living? Well, no, no, it's not. And I think what, would, what we want to try and do is, if, you want, if, you, if a farmer wants to farm and uh, carry out a profitable farming business, that's absolutely right. But what I suppose we are wanting to do as government is create the options that are available to you, create the opportunities should you wish to explore them. So on the diversification point, it's right that if, as, as Robert has said, if you're wanting to sweat your asset for whatever diversification route you wish, may wish to go down to, that you've got the options available to do that as easy as you wish 
wish to do so. And we're having conversations in the department around looking around permitted development rights at the moment. I think there's some, still some issues around there to free things up to create uh, options or, or further options that can be available to how people want to use their asset. When it comes on to um, ELMS, uh, whether it's um, sustainable farming incentive, current uh, uh, stewardship schemes, landscape recovery schemes, whatever it may be, those are options that you may wish to explore. And it is, the, I think, the state's role to be able to create as many uh, options available to you should you wish to explore them with not any expectation that you um, uh, enter every single one of them or all of them, but you have a range of options available to you that best fit the, your farming practice or enhance the farming practice that you're undertaking at the moment. I think we have to have a sensible conversation, as is happening, um, I believe, in DEFRA, that f food security and food production has got to be at the heart of whatever we're doing. And that we have seen, in my view, innovation within this industry uh, drop down uh, the rankings when we've been relying on the common agricultural policy for too long. So we've got to make sure that whether it's through ELMS or through other grant-based schemes that we're making those options available, those opportunity options available, should you wish to explore them. Do you want to come back on that at all, Phil? Yeah, but why, why is food production not profitable? That's the crux of the matter. Yeah, yeah. You, you, Sir Robert mentioned the doctors. They want more money because they can't make doctoring profitable. Mm. Mm. Well, mm. Get, tell them to open a corner shop. Mm. That's what we've all done. We've all had to go out and create and sweat our business. Mm. Our business is food production. Mm. But we're, we're constantly being told to do it cheaper and cheaper. Mm. You'll lose the environment, sir. I'm sorry, but unless you give us more money, the environment's finished. Mm. Yeah. So, so, uh, um, so uh, coming. I mean, coming back. We, we've got to make sure that um, every every landowner, farmer, however they're utilising their asset, can utilise it as, as best as they wish to suit, suit their aspirations, their business, their own circumstance. And we have to and, and not, uh, to get those bit farming businesses as profitable uh, and, and into 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 the black, so to speak, if, if they're not already. It, it's got to be, it's, it's multifaceted as we all know. It's not just relying on state subsidy, it's, it goes across the board. You know, what interaction are we having with the supply chain, supermarkets, um, fertiliser prices, global inf influences with what we've been seeing in Ukraine. But the, the role of the state has got to be as best suited and ha give you the options that are available that aren't hindering what you're wanting to do. And that's what we're trying to do with the rollout with, um, with Elms as best as we can. Thank you. Anybody else in the audience? Could, could I maybe just add one point? My committee is currently engaged in, in an inquiry into fairness in the food supply chain. And indeed, uh, just before uh, Christmas, we, we had the, uh, uh, the Prime Minister uh, giving evidence to the Liaison Committee. And I asked him specifically whether we should extend the role of the uh, grocery adjudicator, because actually they only deal with that last that last link in the chain of production indeed and if you look what happened after the invasion of Ukraine when pig feed went through the roof chicken feed went out of the roof you know the, the supermarkets uh, were, were not giving farmers a return people losing 40 or 50 pounds on a pig um, the the packer the egg packer said to the supermarkets look if you don't give us more money there won't be the eggs in the autumn they didn't get any, any more money and of course people didn't fill their sheds up again so I think you know we need to look carefully at how 
the, the, the value of our food is actually reflected in the price that farmers get. Uh, and I know uh, Sophie's from Morrison's, but you know, the supermarkets are very ruthless at pushing down prices because not only do they say they want to give good, good value to their customers, but they want to maximise their profits. And, and there, there is some fairly... And we're actually having a, a, a private evidence session from farmers who, and, and others in the food supply chain who... Um, feel that they're being treated quite unfairly. You know, you, you can't make money growing carrots. You know, at some point, uh, we, we've got two or three big carrot producers in the country. At some point, they might think, well, why, why are we doing this? Why are we producing all these carrots? Because there's no money there. People were losing money on pigs for two years. No wonder the, the, the sour has fallen by 20%, which means more imports. So, you know, I, I think that some... Some processes take a long view. I mean, McCain Food, which is in my constituency, they have a, a contract which actually reflects the price of diesel, the price of fertiliser, the price of all the other inputs. But for most producers, you know, the price they got, it bears no relation to what the inputs are and, and the price can go up and go down if you look at what's been happening with milk prices recently. Um, and I think we probably need to have a more collaborative um, arrangement between the supermarkets and the processors and the farmers to ensure that actually everybody's making a fair profit, which means then we can have a sustainable supply and we don't get into a situation where we, we have, you know, we're importing more pork because we don't have enough pigs. We're, import, we're importing eggs from Italy uh, uh, after the invasion of Ukraine. So I think, we, we need to, I think the supermarkets need to understand a little better, you know, if they want to have good food on the shelves, they've got to make sure that everybody makes a decent profit, including the farmer. Thank you, Robert. Yeah. So, Sophie? Yes, yeah, so, absolutely. So I think it would be very remiss if I didn't respond at this point, wouldn't it? So, uh, so absolutely, and I appreciate this is an incredibly, uh, you know... Um sensitive issue. So we as a supermarket are obviously, as has been talked about, very mindful about the customers that are coming in through our shop door. Um, we know that if uh, if our prices aren't right, they'll shop elsewhere. It's an incredibly competitive industry in the UK and that is just that is just fact. And we know that we've also you know, had times when, for example, when there was the cost of production crisis first started after the war in, in the Ukraine, um, given that we're sort of buying directly from, uh, from farms and we have our own manufacturing businesses, as many of you will know here, um, which services much of the fresh food that we sell in Morrison's, you know, the prices that we then passed on to consumers um, rose much more quickly than they did from other supermarkets and customers voted with their feet and weren't elsewhere. And so we are in a sort of a very competitive market in the UK. However, we're also very mindful that, yes, we are 100% British and all the fresh milk, meat, eggs um, that we buy and produce when in season and we want to stay that way. We farmed and bought from farmers for generations and we don't want that to stop. You know, we want to be able to have... Um, British foods, foods you know, on our shelves for customers to buy. All these fantastic, you know, new customers that we're going to, that we're educating for years and years to come. Do you have the skills for tomorrow's farming challenges? TIA is the home of skills and careers in agriculture and horticulture, and we are here to help you keep your professional development on track. Join TIA today to identify your training needs and access online learning to help you tackle them. Find trusted local training providers and keep all your training records in one secure place. Save time with employer toolkits, templates and expert webinars. To find out more and become a member, visit tia.org. That's T-I-A-H dot The Farmers Weekly Podcast. Robin Winter, we see from the audience tonight that food prices are such that farmers feel often that they can't make it make food production profitable. But on the consumer side, we're in a cost of living crisis. A lot of consumers simply think that food is is too expensive for them to be able to afford. 
Yeah, I think that's it. I think the, it's a it's a really bad time for for that messaging. I think of of um, that people should be paying more for food because of course people should be paying more for food. Um, but it but it's the kind of thing that it's it's so hard to say that at the moment in a in a cost of living crisis. Um, and you know, a lot of the work that I've been doing recently um, has been around. Um, you know, I, I, I wrote something recently about people buying uh, stolen food that had been shoplifted from supermarkets and they were buying it like round the corner from the pub. Um, the shoplifter would knock on the window and they'd come out and, and buy it for, you know, a fraction, you know, big bags of meat for a fraction of what it what it costs in the supermarket because they felt that they couldn't afford to buy those products um, in the supermarket. Um, and that's, you know... That is, as we've as we've discussed, you know, not even remotely. You know, the price in the supermarket is not even remotely uh, related to the cost of production. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I don't have an answer, unfortunately, or, or anything ready to suggest. But it's just, yeah, it's just the worst possible time to to be able to be trying to get that message across. I'm going to come to thank you. I'm going to come to the gentleman there, and then I'm going to go to Andrew Swift, John Gatenby, speaking now as a carrot producer. Thank you very much for your introduction, Robert. Uh, we were lucky in that our carrots were lifted just before it got seriously wet, so we only had a partial contribution to that annual Swamps Are Us competition. My neighbour is having his carrots lifted now. Um, the damage to the soil is such that it'll take three, four, five years before that soil's back in reasonable condition. And soil health is something we're being enhanced in sure to, to push forward vigorously, but we can't very well. Um, my question, particularly to the retailer side, is why are you giving away carrots, some even for free, and the rest for tens of pence a kilo at Christmas, and then as soon as Christmas is over, you're discounting an awful lot of stock to try and move it on. Could you just try and manage stock somewhat better so that we aren't having to ruin our fields for you? Thank you. Thank you. So, Sophie and, and, and then Andrew. Yes, certainly. So, uh, yes, yeah, so thank you for your question. So, obviously, carrots is obviously very much part of people's main Christmas dinner. So, everybody's wanting to look for a carrot at their Christmas dinner. And, uh, and it does absolutely seem that carrots has become one of those sort of like stories of price that is going over every retailer. So, I completely understand your point. And there was obviously quite a lot of comments that were on social media and in the mainstream media as well in, uh, at Christmas time. As you know, we didn't lower at Morrison's our price of carrots quite as aggressively as some. But nevertheless, they were still, um, you know, sort of uh, obviously significantly cheaper than they are now because it is there as a bit of a as a, a signal to customers and something they maybe have got used to um, so I think it is a I think it's a, I don't know whether I've got an answer particularly for you now we're obviously always going to need to have carrots at Christmas it's going to be a really big time of eating them and that's when customers are going to want to look for them so I suppose that's that's sort of talking about the volumes that are coming in potentially we need to do more in thinking about how we buy them and when we're asking you to lift them and you know when we're sort of uh, could maybe do more in terms of storage for carrots as well but I don't think that's necessarily going to work from a quality point of view so uh, so yeah I think it's not one that I necessarily have an answer for immediately um, but uh, I take your point that thinking that uh, that price at Christmas is not really reflective when you are thinking about the hard efforts and the and they're very tricky and Environmental efforts were going into lifting the carrots at the time. Yeah, I'm sure I would need them at the moment. Thank you, and Andrew Swift. Uh, thanks. Uh, I wanted to go back to the earlier question from a gentleman in the middle left um, 
Because I think your question convolutes two, two points, actually. The first one we've been beginning to discuss as a panel is, is the cost of food too cheap and is it valued by the consumer in the right way? And the answer, I think, is it is too cheap and it's undervalued. You know, don't forget that the UK is, I think, the fourth most offensive food waster in the world behind the, UAE, uh, the, the USA and the UAE in Qatar. I mean, we're, we're shocking valuers of food. Too much goes in the bin. We don't upcycle enough of it. You know, when I was a kid, my mum you know, put the meal on the table on a Sunday and it fed us for the next three days. If it was a joint of beef, it came out in various different guises, but, it, but we valued it. So I think, I think that's, um, that's a real issue. But the second issue is, you know, should the entrepreneurial farmer uh, innovate and diversify for other revenue streams for a competitive advantage? Absolutely, why not? And, and if that is running weddings, or if that is doing shoots, or if that is uh, farming for carbon, or if that is farming for an SFI gain by n delivering better natural capital and rewilding, absolutely. I think the schemes need to add up to make it pay for the farmer to do that. That's, so how you, how you monetize the scheme is the crux to the question there. But I, so I think your question's two questions in one. We're well, and that's why I answered it first by saying food is too cheap, I think. And, and Robin, I don't think there's ever been the right time to talk about putting food prices up. I've been yeah. around long enough. You know, there's never a good time. There's never a right time. It takes courage. So, thank you. The, um, the, the gentleman two rows back, thank you. So who you are and where you're from? Hi there, I'm Paul Tompkins and I'm a dairy farmer from just outside York. Um, I'll Try not to pick on Morrison's because I think it's unfair with just Sophie there. So I'll choose another supermarket. <laughs> uh, this year, Tesco's are expecting to announce profits of 2.75 billion. I think I've just found where some more money could come through the supply chain. Are you eager to unlock untapped potential and create more income from your land? Have you been exploring ways of diversifying your farming business? Do you want to become a key player in the solution to the climate crisis? Why not consider leasing your land for solar with Lightsource BP? Take a look at what we offer and how you can partner with us at www.lightsourcebp.com UK. The Farmer's Weekly Podcast. There does come a time at almost every single Farmer's Weekly question time event when we have to address this question in one form or another. Mark Hatton. This is obviously the naughty boys row over here. Yeah. <laughs> Good evening. Um, my name's Mark Hatton. I work for the Farming Forum. Um, given the recent controversy surrounding Red Tractor, specifically on its handling with the Greener Farm Commitments Policy, does the panel think the organisation is still fit for purpose? There's never a good time to answer this question because we could um, spend the whole evening debating it. But, uh, but Sophie... Is the uh, red tractor ski, is it still fit for purpose? So uh, let's try and keep it fairly brief. Because <laughs> so there are other questions. Sorry, go on. No, not at all. No, so thank you for your questions. So, so yeah, so I, uh, as uh, so Johan sort of said in the introduction, I'm um, on the Red Tractor um, main board and I'm there to represent all the British retail consortiums, all the different retailers. So, <clears throat> as you'll be well aware of how Red Tractor is constructed, there's different sort of um, NFU have a seat on the table, British meat processors and others, and, and also the retailers as well. So, for me, yes, Red Tractor still absolutely has a purpose and it absolutely has a value. So so um, we have done a lot of research with our customers in our shops and um, we know that they value the red tractor um, 
uh, brand and the red tractor being there. To be honest with you, and this won't be necessarily a surprise, they don't know what everything is that it covers. And actually, I'm not surprised because I'm not sure all of us can remember everything that it covers. But uh, they do know that it's generally a good thing. And it's a good thing that they can sort of feel trust and assured that their food that they're buying is, is as it sort of sort of says um, in the in the sort of logo and the saying safer for and, and farmed with care and so for us as well it's really important that red tractor is there and i've had this conversation with all of my retailers representing them that it's a consistent standard that we can all apply as well so instead of uh, particularly for livestock farmers who may be going to different sort of abattoirs to different retailers in in the end you know having to apply many many different standards it's one overall standard that is there to sort of try and uh, sort of um, uh, provide a consistency and hopefully a more efficient way of looking at farm assurance standards. And so for that purpose, it absolutely has a value. Um, I think obviously with the Greener Farms commitment, Red Tractor was answering the call from retailers and it has been well documented. And we've also, um, I've also gone on record before as sort of saying that, you know, we are have an enormous amount of pressure that comes, yes, interest from customers about environmental footprint, but also a huge amount of questions that come from other stakeholders in the business, shareholders and investors and lots of other people who are who really have a, a demanding a transparency um, and an ask for data and interest that, that we just don't have at the moment. And we'd much rather be able to have a one system that sort of gathers that in in a, in a way that hopefully can be done at the same time as the farm audit than to have lots and lots of numerous different systems. It's also, hopefully, if you have one system, it's going to mark apples with apples rather than apples with pears and enable some fairer comparisons. And so I think there are many reasons why Red Tractor absolutely still has a value. Having said all of that, how this is, how you know, there's absolutely lessons to learn in how Red Tractor communicates better with the farming, with the farming uh, industry, how it listens better to the farming industry, and how it takes feedback and sort of thinks about how things are, is, are, are sort of rolled out. So certainly, you know, as retailers, we were asking for the environment module, for example, for a good number of years, and it's taken sort of almost to reach a crescendo and then all sort of fall into a, a, a lot of extra discussions. So yeah, it does absolutely have a value. It's uh, how, how we'll find it's way through this current path is going to be really interesting but uh, yeah I hope that answers your question. Could, could I just say that Sophie I mean do, there is you say as a retailer it does have a value there is a perception uh, among Farmers Weekly readers and the wider farming community that it might have a value for other people but at the moment it, it doesn't necessarily have a value for, for farmers and that they're having to it has a cost to farmers but they don't always see a benefit. Yeah, and I appreciate that point of view. I mean, as we sort of said, we're farmers at home and, uh, you know, we're my, um, we, we, my husband's a dairy farmer, but also on the farm at home, we have hens as well, laying hens. Um, and to be honest, there's, there's, there is already additional standards that, you know, my husband's an Arla farmer, that's quite a demanding set of standards. And uh, certainly on the egg side of the business, uh, you know, British Lion Code, is significantly more complicated than uh, than the red tractor standard. So uh, you know there are also lots of other things that uh, that they that were there and uh, are mindful of. And so that is an awful lot of, of of paperwork to follow in many cases, and also standards to get your head round. But it is a little bit about a uh, a sort of almost like a. a a, 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 a passing go standard to get into sort of retail food production. I don't think there is a retailer that doesn't have Red Tractor as their as their entry level standard to come in. And I appreciate that makes it really difficult to feel well. Why is that therefore an added value? It's just more of a 
a thing we have to do. So I understand that sort of comment that says, well, actually, I'm sure I get anything extra from doing Red Tractor. I suppose what it is, it is, it is absolutely that sort of entry level value. But that's why for the environment module, certainly, you know, we as Morrisons were looking at how we could potentially understand how we could support a modular, a modular addition with potentially additional, um, additional sort of support than just uh, the core buying price. Does anybody from the audience want to want to make a quick point on yeah. say who you are and where you're from? There's a couple over there. Could, can we I've keep just, it brief though? So, so then we can. I, I will some keep more it brief, and I, but I must declare an interest as well as um, I'm a farmer representative on the Red Tractor Dairy Board. So I think it's only fair that I mention that. And there's nobody in this room that's been more frustrated with the process and the difficulties that Red Tractor have gone through over the last few weeks than me. But is there a role for assurance? absolutely 100%. Without assurance, then I wouldn't be able to demonstrate responsible use of medicine on my farm, and therefore some of my medicines would have been, would have been taken away from me by now. Uh, without assurance, there wouldn't be mass balancing in the crop sector, which allows our crops to go to the European markets, offering uh, farmers in this region a premium on their product of around £10 a tonne. So is there a need for assurance? Absolutely. As a farmer, it doesn't always feel that easy to stand up and defend them because we know what the process has gone through. And it's only right that we do sort out the way that decisions are made within Red Tractor. But I just wanted to reinforce Sophie's answer. Is there a role for assurance for farmers? Is there a value for assurance to farmers? 100%. Thank you. Just uh, the gentleman over there, and then I think there's a gentleman three rows back, possibly as well. Thank you, Andrew Wilson. Uh, range of crops, cereals, root crops, and can keep pigs. Red track. I have no problem with it with assurance per se. But when the, we start gold plating the gold plates, it's going to step too far. It was just take pigs as an example. I have four quarterly vet inspections a year and four assurance inspections. Most of the insurance ones are retailer-driven. They all like to have their, their own sheet of paper, and sometimes we can have three inspections in, in two days. One might be the vet, and there might be two assurance ones. They're all looking at the same pigs and the same paperwork and the same buildings. Surely the vet is the most qualified person for that. Very, very rarely do any of the, the supermarket assurance inspectors look at anything other than paperwork, barring a cursory look over the gate. The vets have put the pigs first, the paperwork second, and that's the right way to be. Surely the vet's the most qualified person for doing, the, for doing those assurance visits. They all take time, they all take money. My, my cereals and root crops inspections was nine hours this year. Nine hours of looking at ticked boxes and nonsense that we have to adhere to. And then you get a, a mark down because there's a few weeds growing outside the back of your grain store. It is getting a little bit ridiculous. Every cost to my business needs to be balanced by value, and I really struggle to see where the value is to the farmer. It does look a little bit more like it's pointing us down a more corporate level, and it's trying to drive farming and industry into less and much bigger hands. Because if you don't matter if you have, if you have 10,000 acres, you have one red tractor inspection, just the same as mine does on my little patch. Thank you very much. The gentleman, was there, was, there another, no. was there another person that wanted to make a point? Oh, sorry, the lady just said. Thank you. Uh, Ellie Poulton. I work in the agricultural washing sector. Um, I also deal with a lot of poultry clients in our sector. Um, I am aware of many, many clients that have stopped in the poultry sector due to the red tractor standards. 
Is it really fair that these farmers who are trying to survive stop due to these standards just because hand sanitizer isn't available there or their foot dip is just a tiny bit dirty? I think it is getting ridiculous now. Thank you. And I'm... God. Well, just, just, just brief, and then I'm yeah, going to ask... Really brief. I just wanted to... Something popped into the back of my mind, and that is you may have seen that on January the 1st, Proposition 12 was introduced in the USA, in California. And this is where the Californians have had a, had a referendum and have uh, changed the law in order that they can no longer buy pork products that are not produced to a high standard. This is decimating the hog industry across Europe, across the US, because the farmer has not kept pace with consumer demand. So I accept the challenges put out here, but if we do not keep pace with what the consumer wants us to produce, they will stop buying it. And they will pass laws to stop everyone else buying it, because they have done it in California, they will do it here. Thank you very much. Uh, so just briefly, Sophie, do you want to come back on that? Yeah, just a couple of things. So I think, I think absolutely, I think it's really important and to hear sort of lots of feedback. But, and, um, but for example, to take the point about the vet, um, and yeah, absolutely, you know, I worked with vets for 10 years and so I'm very much a vet sort of minded. Um, but the vets can only check for animal welfare and Red Tractor obviously covers a lot more than just animal welfare. And so it's uh, just understanding, you know, who else is going to sort of do the assurance of all those other elements of Red Tractor. This is not just about animal welfare and we know from a customer point of view why Red Tractor was there to provide assurance. You know, talking about what we were talking about earlier and today, they're wanting to understand it's more than just animal welfare um, that is being th thought about here. Well, all the same paperwork as the assurance inspectors but then, well, okay, I don't know your particular family. And the other thing I was just going to say was, I think there is a very good point, though, about audit burden and understanding how audits are made. Certainly from Morrison's, when we did a pig, I don't know your different supermarket audits that you've had, but from Morrison's perspective, when we were doing our Bolton audits for pigs, we, made, we wanted those to do them at the same time as the Red Tractor visit and introduce something through a system um, which was uh, run through the Red Tractor portal so we could have the, have the visit done at the same time. So, you know, I think it is something about being very sensitive about how many times you want to get out your books and you know and actually also targeting and what, what you're targeting and looking at certainly as from a Morrison's perspective as well when we go and do our dairy beef audits we're only looking at animals we're not looking at paperwork so uh, so I think there is a way of looking at this in terms of how either parts to play and what you want out of it but um, the feedback is is well intentioned but I think Paul makes a very good point we can't ignore that insurance is there. Thanks, Sophie. I've been told that we've got time for one or two more questions. Um, <coughs> if we're quick, we can probably do two. But so, uh, Andrew, just, just quickly. Just a quick couple of comments to me around Red Tractor. Um, firstly, I think I'd rather have a voluntary standard than a mandatory standard. Mm. So I think, you know, embracing voluntary standard schemes and working with them to make them better is a better way to go. Otherwise, it'll reverse the other way. Uh, I thought it was a voluntary scheme. They say it is, but like Sophie said, you can't sell without having Red Tractor. Mm. Mm. Well, it's, it's classified as a voluntary scheme. <laughs> it is. I think, I think the other comment I was going to make would make me even less popular then. <laughs> and that was, I don't see a point of a voluntary scheme unless it's continually raising the bar. It, you know, the, there's no point in having a voluntary scheme which is an all-members club fulfilling the basics. It should be aspiring to set higher standards and differentiate price and quality in the market for the products. So again, I'd encourage people to work with it and make it better. And finally, I'd say, I think the trick that Red Tractor might be missing is it's not recognised on the streets of Japan. 
or it's not recognised in the international markets where highest value export product should carry a real premium from the UK. If you want to buy Manuka honey, you buy Honey New Zealand Manuka honey with Honey New Zealand logo on the front of the label and you'll pay a lot of money for that in the UK. Why aren't we putting Red Tractor and getting Red Tractor recognised on the streets of Tokyo? So does government have a role to play for Brown Britain? I think it does, and, and it is doing. But Robbie, Robbie should speak just on that, Robbie, just brief, briefly. Uh, very brief, yeah, absolutely, of course it does. And that's why um, with the Department for Trade, we've increased the number of trade attaches that we've got going. We need to go further on that, but we, have, we absolutely have a role, absolutely, to make sure that brand Britain is, is circulated right across the globe to make sure we're supporting our market base to um, better suit um, the produce that we're wanting to export. That's a, that's a yes. Most definitely. Thanks, Robbie. So, Robert Goodwill. Well, Andrew made the point I was going to make that the voluntary scheme was brought in because there was a fear there would be a statutory scheme. And if you think there's a lot of box ticking and, and gold plating <coughs> on the voluntary scheme, imagine what would happen if the politicians had got hold of it and DEFRA had actually drawn up the scheme. But, I mean, there, there are some rather... I mean, I remember we were having our farm assurance and, and I didn't tick the box, have you cleaned your combine? And I said to the guy, the reason I'm ticked off, you haven't really been specific. I said, there's no way I'm going to steam clean my combine at the end of the season, get water in all the bearings. It's in a rat-proof shed. You know, I, you know, would I eat my dinner off the riddles? No, but it's clean. And, and he said, well, it doesn't specify. So I, I got my sleeve, I rubbed the steps, and I ticked the box, and he said, fine. I mean, that's why some farmers get quite annoyed. You know, that, 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 you know it's, 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 the, that was just a box that needed to be ticked. And, and actually, you know, what is important thing is, do you keep your combine in a vermin-proof shed so that you don't have a load of rat muck in it the first time you crank it up at harvest next year? Thank, thank you, Robert Goodwill. Um, the, the farmers weekly question time, loads of questions, are always difficult to decide which ones to ask and which we are running out of time. I've been told a few times now. Um, one of my favourite questions which we haven't, um, we haven't asked this evening is uh, when is it going to stop raining? But um, um, in all seriousness, no, though, uh, we wouldn't be able to put on these events without the kind hospitality of, uh, of our hosts. So thank you very much to the Future Farmers of, of Yorkshire and to the pavilions of Harrogate uh, for that. And also to our, our sponsors, to GSC Grays, to Lightsource BP, and, and also to TIA, to the Institute of Agriculture and Horticulture, of, of, of which I've already had mentioned uh, this evening. This is, um, we don't do sort of birthday celebrations, but this is a, a, is a special week for TIA, which um, after many months and running in a beta version, it actually launched um, yesterday. So uh, we are at the end of this evening, and, and I assure you it is a one minute uh, or so um, film that we are going to show you because I think it is an important development within the industry but um, but for now Stephen Jacob from TIR is going to ask a question it is I'm sorry to those who didn't get to ask their question is going to be the last question of the evening everybody on the panel is going to be um, it's, it's going to be a, a mandatory voluntary uh, answer so they are going to have to answer this but anyway Stephen Jacob you had seen the number of challenges facing farmers is consistently increasing. From each of your perspectives, what skills will farmers need to develop to ensure their businesses remain successful? So what skills will farmers have to develop to ensure that their businesses um, remain successful? I'm going to start with Andrew Swift and I'm just going to go down the panel and if everybody could give their, their answers. Andrew. Well, I, 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 
I'm not a farmer, so I have a difficulty to start with the answer to the question. So I can only imagine um, what skills would reinforce. Uh, first of all, more conventional business uh, accounting, economics, and business practice, because wherever I go, I don't see a huge amount of that. Um, and secondly, uh, more uh, uh, understanding of ecology and biology for, for really gauging the true impact of the farm production practice on the natural environment that it's being drawn from, that what's being mortgaged in order to produce the food. So that you can then benefit from the schemes available to try to incentivise better farming. Andrew, th thank you. Sophie, three. Uh, thank you. So I would say um, some skills that understand the customer. Um, a lot of farmers often think that when it leaves the farm gate, and I'm sure that's not everybody in this room, but then that's it, it job's done. But it's actually understanding, well, actually, what am I producing and why am I producing it and who am I producing it for? And so I think those skills and understanding who the customer is or who your customer is and what they want from you is really important because at the end of the day, we are growing food for a customer to buy. Thank you very much. Robbie Moore. And I would say, don't, as part of that skill set, don't underestimate the power of influence that you have, not only uh, as a body, but how you can best utilise the skill set that you have in terms of collaboration within the industry. Because I think for far too often we operate uh, very much in a silo mentality, and I'm saying that almost from any organisations, any government sector organisations or business sector organisations, the more collaboration that you can have, more cross-learning that you can learn from one another, the better that the whole standard of the industry raises. Robbie, thank you. Robin Vinter. Um, probably a bit of a cop-out because this is not about individual farmers, but as an industry, um, uh, developing just better PR because I think a lot of what you guys do is, is so great and so interesting and really does appeal to people. And you mentioned Clarkson's Farm earlier. That's a perfect example. People who didn't know anything about farming watched that and saw how difficult he made it look. <laughs> um, and uh, as, as an industry, you know, being able to be open, and it's hard because sometimes you feel like you're under attack from a lot of different directions, but being able to be open and being able to have conversations with very, you know, sometimes very ignorant people, um, you know, can really bring a lot of benefits. Um, Robin, thank you. I guess as I'm last, I would say all of the above, but I think the skill I'd most like to have as we look to the future is the skill to read a crystal ball because <laughs> how can you predict what's going to happen? You know, you, let's go back five years. You know, who could have predicted the invasion? Of, who could have predicted, you know, fertiliser at £1,000 a tonne, you know, wheat at 300 then next year back down to 180 So I think that, you know, we, we need to try and look into the future, but my goodness, that is a very difficult task because, you know, we've got to keep our businesses going. We've got to understand what the markets require but things happen we're price takers and i think um, if only we could see what was going to happen in the future we'd be in a much better position sadly that is not the case thank you very much uh, sir robert ladies and gentlemen that's it for this evening's farmers weekly question time i'd like to thank you all for coming thank you to our sponsors the institute for agriculture and horticulture light source bp and gsc grays for making this evening possible thank you too to the future farmers of yorkshire and to the pavilions of harrogate for hosting us and thank you too to our panel, Defra Minister Robbie Moore, Guardian journalist Robin Vinter, uh, Farrah Chief Executive Andrew Swift, Sophie Throop from Morrison's and EFRA Committee Chairman Sir Robert uh, Goodwill. Thank you very much. We all deserve a round of applause. Thank you.
And that's it for this special episode of the Farmers Weekly podcast, the Farmers Weekly Question Time event from Harrogate in Yorkshire. Do listen to the regular Farmers Weekly podcast out every Friday with all the latest news and views about farming in the UK. And if you like what you hear, do subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. I'm your host, Johan Tasker. Thank you for listening.